been a while, gang. Last year when I kicked off this podcast, my family and I were simultaneously selling everything we own and moving into an RV to live in and travel full-time. And let's just say that it was uh, more challenging than I thought to transition into that lifestyle and maintain projects like this podcast. But I've wanted to dive back into this for so long. And finally, here we are. I can't wait for you to hear this episode. But first, we need to recap on where we left off after the last episode. We discovered that the world of the 19th and early 20th centuries was obsessed with human perfection. Americans wanted to create an idealized society in any way possible, a perfect human machine. And two huge schools of thought drove this idea, and they sort of collided. One was the obsession with using science and genetics to perfect the human condition. The other was using the supernatural, meaning witchcraft, cult beliefs in the power of the universe, or discovering the untapped power of the mind. And in our examination on this podcast, this also impacted American Christianity. Now, eventually, the scientific side of this obsession with human perfection would lead to atrocious practices like eugenics. Eugenics, also known by the terms racial improvement and planned breeding, was the practice of breeding out defects in humans, allowing only certain genetic traits in certain types of people to breed. This resulted in the murder of millions of people all across the world who didn't carry these, quote, so-called traits. Now, most people think of Germany and Hitler when they hear the word eugenics because public education did a terrible job of covering the subject in school. The truth is that eugenics was practiced in many places. France did it, Great Britain did it, Sweden, Belgium, Japan, and of course, America participated in eugenics as much as these other countries. We just did it differently here. We here in America were all about sterilization in poor and black and Jewish communities. In fact, some of our historic figures, like Margaret Sanger, the founder of what is now Planned Parenthood, went to Germany and shared ideas with some of the eugenicists there. Even our beloved Teddy Roosevelt, former president of the United States at the beginning of the 20th century, you know, the guy who rode a moose in that famous picture, he admitted he was fascinated by the prospect of eugenics and controlling genes according to the dictates of the state. And America did many disturbing things in the name of perfecting the human race over the course of the last century. So that shows you how important human perfection was at this point in history. Now, the other side of human perfection took a much more metaphysical approach. People believed that there were untapped powers in your thoughts, in your rituals, and in your ability to understand the spiritual laws of the universe. This is where many modern depictions of the occult and witchcraft come from. I visited Gideon's Bakehouse in Disney Springs. It's this famous bake shop that has the aesthetic of a Victorian house with rows and rows of chemistry and lab books that are mixed with witchcraft literature and pentagrams and diagrams, Tesla power spokes and Edison bulbs everywhere. It's a real steampunk look that has a turn-of-the-century feel to it. Well, the reason people often think of the occult and witchcraft and universalism when they think of this Victorian era is because that is when this became popular again. 
The early 1900s, they were obsessed with discovering spiritual power in the universe, and it sought that power through witchcraft and the untapped forces of the mind. Well, our story today turns to a sect of Christianity and how this obsession with human perfection and thought power influenced the practice of a few Christian circles in America. Now, if you haven't listened to my first episode on this topic yet, I recommend that you go back and listen to that episode. It's called The New Thought Movement Part 1. This is the second episode in a series of episodes on the New Thought Movement. But hey, if you're here and you just want to jump right in and go catch up on episode one later, that's fine too. We're going to turn now to the influence of the New Thought Movement on migrating African-American communities in the early 20th century. It started out as a white thing, but it didn't stay there. The New Thought Movement takes us today into the life of a fascinating man who ultimately inspired the cult leader, Jim Jones. His name is Father Divine. Let's go. It's 1919. If you look at a magazine anywhere, The Woman Citizen, The Country Gentleman, Good Housekeeping Magazine, American Magazine, even Cosmopolitan Magazine, there are new thought movement ideas everywhere where women are being encouraged to believe in what they want, and if they think it hard enough, they will make it happen. Men are encouraged to picture their dream life and they will manifest it over time. Quote, the power of the laws of the universe is at our fingertips, you would read in Vogue, if only we will reach out and take what has always belonged to us. You'll hear the same ideas by Phineas Quimby, the original author of the New Thought Movement, whom we covered in the previous episode. At this point, these ideas are not uncommon anymore. They exist on just about every bookshelf and newspaper stand, in Broadway plays, and often across the dinner table between husbands and wives. But while this is happening, African Americans are starting to migrate across the nation, many into northern, more urban locations than had lived there previously. Racism and socioeconomic issues are still a serious thorn in the side of African communities, and at this point in American history, every family, regardless of race, is trying to move upstream economically. The promise of wealth and success and the American dream is still relatively new in these major urban areas for the lower and middle class. So those struggling to survive and wishing to thrive are ripe and ready for the promises that the New Thought Movement will offer. Capitalism and industrialization are believed to be making some communities wealthy while keeping other communities in poverty. And then, profits arrived. They herald what we refer to as Black Spiritualism. One of the first influencers in the Black community for New Thought was a man named George Willie Hurley also known to some as Father Hurley, who told his followers to counter racism with positive thinking. But our story today focuses on the life of another figure in black spiritualism. His name is Father Divine. Father Divine's full name 
a name that he gave himself, was Reverend Major Jealous Divine. Let's start with the strikingly controversial stuff right away. Father Divine claimed he was God. Yep. And not like some hobo who wanders the streets at night and claims to be God. Father Divine inaugurated a movement that swept hundreds of thousands of people into it. He fought racism and advocated for civil rights. He taught self-reliance and responsibility. And he did everything he could to create an interracial community among his followers. On paper, Father Divine is actually quite a wonderful figure. But when you look into his beliefs and other factors among his followers, things get really weird. Let's start at the beginning, though. Very little is known about Father Divine's life prior to his meager ministry beginnings. Some people claim his real name is George Baker, but no one could prove it. And Father Divine himself refused to acknowledge any family members on Earth. The Library of Congress doesn't even recognize that name with Father Divine anymore. Another woman named Eliza Mayfield claimed at one point to be Father Divine's mother, and she told the press that he hailed from Henderson, North Carolina, and abandoned a wife and five children at some point in his life. Eliza couldn't offer any proof, however, and when the press questioned Father Divine on the matter, he simply stated, God has no mother. Most researchers have suggested that Father Divine comes from a former slave named Nancy Baker, who lived in an enclave in Rockville, Maryland. When slaves were freed after the Civil War, states were terrible at keeping records on newly freed persons, so it's no surprise that Father Divine's past is a little difficult to dig up. We do know that in 1906, he traveled from where he lived in Baltimore, Maryland, to California, and stayed there a while, where he came upon the teachings of Charles Fillmore, a renowned New Thought Movement preacher. Fillmore had been publishing his beliefs in a periodical called Modern Thought for over a decade, and churches and classes were springing up all over the West Coast promulgating Fillmore's views. Fillmore believed at one point that he might be the reincarnation of the Apostle Paul. You'll start seeing a pattern here with reincarnated biblical figures soon. After George Baker had been studying Fillmore's teachings on New Thought, he started attending a Baptist church back home in Maryland and even preached from time to time. One Sunday service, a guest speaker named Samuel Morris was preaching, and at the close of Morris's message in that Baptist church, sources say he raised his hands in the air and shouted, I am the Eternal Father! This, of course, got him kicked out of that church, just as he had been kicked out of many churches in Maryland. But George Baker was intrigued by Morris, and shortly afterward, Baker became Samuel Morris's first real follower, and Baker adopted the pseudonym The Messenger. Essentially, Baker was claiming to be a Jesus Christ figure to Samuel Morris's eternal father figure. Eventually, the messenger, George Baker, and Samuel Morris began teaching out of a house that belonged to the famous evangelist Harriet Snowden. A third figure named John A. Hickerson, who called himself Reverend Bishop St. John the Vine, joined the two men, and Samuel Morris started calling himself Father Jehovah. 
All three men preached New Thought Movement theology, claiming the mind and positive thinking could create realities just as God created the universe. And those spiritual realities obeyed laws just like physical realities did. All we have to do is harness them and, well, devote your life to these three men, of course. Now, eventually, Hickerson broke up the three-man preacher group by denying that Samuel Morris could be God because he believed that 1 John 4.15 explained that God was in everyone. Soon afterward, George Baker, the messenger, left Morris as well, claiming that not everyone could be God, and Baker now believed that he alone was God. Done with this little adventure, Baker made his way south and started preaching in Georgia. His teachings were so offensive in some churches that locals convicted him of crimes and sentenced him to serve in a chain gang. For those of you who haven't heard the term, a chain gang, or a road gang, is a group of prisoners chained together to perform menial or physically challenging work as a form of punishment. Eventually, Baker was released and started teaching again in Valdosta, Georgia. His message attracted mostly black women, and the focus of his teachings centered on celibacy for all believers, and he starkly rejected gender classifications of his day. Women were not homemakers, men were not tools of empires, and sexual activity has no place in God's eternal kingdom. So it's time to do away with them now. He went so far as to claim that there was no difference between men and women at all, physically. He believed gender was a construct of a fallen world. Looks like he hopped on that bandwagon a hundred years before everyone else. Naturally, many locals took issue with Baker's disruption of societal norms, and the husbands of some of Baker's followers, along with a few local ministers, had Baker arrested on charges of insanity. But all this did was add to his following. People who worshipped Baker would show up at his cell along with reporters, and his ministry influence spread. At the time of his arrest, Baker never actually gave a real name. He was tried in Georgia as John Doe, a name the court gave him, because when asked, Baker only referred to himself as God. In spite of having what the court called maniacal beliefs, Baker was found mentally sound and was released. After that episode, Baker's life gets really interesting. In 1914, George Baker decided it was time to head north and make his way to New York City. As I mentioned earlier, African Americans are migrating all over the country, seeking better opportunities than the poverty-stricken living they'd been forced to accept since the late 19th century. George Baker followed this trend and decided, like many other Americans, that the Northeast is ripe for opportunity, and New Thought teachings are already prominent there. The famed New Thought and Christian science teachers Mary Plunkett and Emma Curtis Hopkins had established teaching centers in New York City a few years prior to this. George brought with him a few African-American followers, and even though he still claimed he was God, he lived a pretty quiet life in New York. He started off by renting space in an apartment building in Brooklyn, where most of his followers also rented rooms. This building became synonymous with George Baker's ministry, and it sort of turned into a commune. 
In this commune, Baker instituted strict religious rules for his followers. He forbade sexual relations under all circumstances, as well as the use of alcohol, tobacco products, and any form of gambling. This continued for about five years until Mr. Baker formally changed his name to Reverend Major Jealous Divine. The word jealous he took from Exodus 34:14, where God tells Moses, the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Soon afterward, Baker's followers began to don their leader the affectionate title, Father Divine. Talk about bad exegesis of scripture. At some point during these five years, Divine married a follower of his named Penina. She was slightly older than Father Divine, and she was very faithful to him. She often advocated on behalf of her husband when rumors would surface that Father Divine was having sexual relations with some of his young female followers. Both Father Divine and Penina, often called Mother Divine, claimed the two never physically consummated their marriage. In 1919, Father Divine and his followers moved to Long Island in Sayville, New York. Divine and his followers were the first black homeowners in the town's history. The house Father Divine himself purchased was number 72 on McCone Street. The house went up for sale because the owner, a German-American, was having a feud with his neighbor, who was also German. One of the men changed his last name to Fellows instead of Felgenhauer due to anti-German sentiment in America at the time. The other neighbor took serious offense at this, and the men argued at length with each other until one of them decided to sell his house and move. As a final jab at his fellow German neighbor, he intentionally advertised his house to, quote, colored persons in hopes that this would drive down the property value. But this racist jab would backfire horribly, because Father Divine's success erupted after this. Father Divine began holding weekly meetings that were called banquets. And that's exactly what they were. Church-like gatherings where attendees could feast. Divine borrowed from Jesus' words to his disciples that they should feast, not fast, when the bridegroom is present. Divine believed he was God, after all. When newcomers showed up at Divine's banquets, he personally helped them find jobs and create a sustainable life for themselves. News of this spread like wildfire in Long Island, and soon people from all over, black and white alike, started flocking to his ministry commune. Divine's local neighborhood, however, detested the man because his house and the houses of his nearby followers were always brimming with diverse gatherings of people. And Divine's Cadillac made them feel like he was flaunting his wealth. But what did Divine preach exactly that caused such a following? Father Divine advocated a number of economic practices which all his followers abided by. He opposed life insurance, which all his converts were to cancel. He opposed welfare, social security, and the concept of credit. The movement strongly advocated for economic self-sufficiency. 
Devine's insistence that his followers refuse welfare was estimated to have saved New York City $2 million during the Great Depression. Father Devine told his members that government handouts only kept a person living under the oppressed hand of the world's financial control. He believed that by being self-sufficient, a person was able to discover a heavenly economy where knowledge of God's divine blessings could be fathomed and gathered through positive affirmations and prayers. Business owners in the movement named their businesses to show affiliation with Father Divine, and they obeyed all of these practices. They dealt only in cash, refusing credit in any of its forms. Each was to sell below competitors' prices while refusing any sort of tips or gratuities. And they all refrained from trade in alcohol or tobacco. As a reaction to his huge following, Divine's neighbors, all white except for his followers, accused him of operating a harem in his house and engaging in various criminal sexual activities. But the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office said they found the claims baseless. Trying to appease his neighbors, Father Divine had signs posted in front of his property that said things like, Notice, smoking, intoxicating liquors, profane language, and gambling strictly prohibited. Some even claimed that Father Divine prohibited singing and music in his house after 8 p.m., and by 10, all windows and blinds would be closed, and the house would be eerily quiet. He seemed hardly a disruption to the neighborhood. Despite this, his neighbors continued to come after Divine day after day. Finally fed up, a deputy for Sayville, New York, arrested Father Divine for disturbing the peace on May 8, 1931. What neighbors weren't prepared for was Father Divine posting his own bail of $1,000 in cash. During the Great Depression, no less, this was unheard of. During the trial, Father Divine's popularity soared even higher. Upon his release, he immediately began holding banquets again, and as many as 3,000 people would come at a time. Cars clogged his local streets, causing neighbors to grow more furious than before, especially with concerns that their property value would take a dive during an already tumultuous economic depression. On Sunday, November 15th, 1931, at 12.15 in the morning, a police officer was called to Father Divine's, quote, raucously loud home because one of the banquets had gone on longer than usual. By the time state troopers, deputies, and prison buses were called in, however, a mob of neighbors had surrounded the Divine's property. Fearing a riot, the police warned Father Divine and his followers that they all had 15 minutes to disperse, or they faced charges. Father Divine had them wait in silence for 10 minutes, and then they all willingly filed into police custody. His followers were processed by the county jail at three in the morning. The clerks were frustrated because Divine's followers often refused to give their legal names and instead offered the inspired names they adopted while in Divine's movement. 
Names like Father Abraham and Dutiful Ruth. 78 people were arrested altogether, including 15 white people. 46 of them pleaded guilty to disturbing the peace, and they incurred $5 fines, which Father Divine easily paid with a $500 bill. The court was embarrassingly unable to make change for the man. Penina, Father Divine, and about 30 of his followers resisted the charges. Father Divine's arrest, as well as his outrageous theology, were sensationally reported all over New York City. The media made the event, and its repercussions, the single most famous moment of Father Divine's public life. Although the reports were terribly inaccurate, articles on Father Divine continued to propel his popularity. By December, his followers began renting buildings in New York City for Father Divine to speak in. He had several speaking engagements on a single night. On December 20th, he spoke to an estimated audience of 10,000 in Harlem's Rockland Palace, a massive former basketball venue and Manhattan casino. His messages were recorded. Here's a clip from one of Divine's banquets held at the Rockland Palace in Harlem. People got away from that thought of God being with them. Can you not see the mystery? And therefore, they lived and groped in lacks and wants and limitations until now, subject to the oppressions of the politicians and other crooked representatives of government and officials bringing panics and famines, lacks and wants and limitations upon the people. And the poor people were the ones to be the burden bearers. Oh, how glorious it is to know those who are with me, even through the time of the depressions, of panics, and of famines, and of all of the extreme emergencies, I carried in myself and with myself and with me and in my connection the abundance of the fullness of the consciousness of good. And no space has been vacant up until now of the fullness of By May of the next year, meetings were being held regularly at the Rockland and throughout New York City and New Jersey. Father Divine had supporters in Washington State and California as well. New Thought Movement believers like Eugene Del Mar, an early convert and former Harlem journalist, and Henry Jorns, the publisher of a New Thought magazine in Seattle, started making Father Divine famous across the world with their publishings. And although the movement was predominantly black, followers outside the northeastern United States were mostly middle-class white people. 
During this period of fame, several more communes were opened in New York and New Jersey. Father Divine's followers finally decided they needed to name the movement. They called it the International Peace Mission Movement. Here's a clip of Divine preaching one of his customary doctrines on God's universal plan to manifest heaven on earth. Now, what was that giving you? I say that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Christ gave it to Simon by his Father which was within him. And let him know that Christ Jesus was the Son of the living God. That was the key that would unlock every bar and shut door. It would unlock the heart's doors of the children of men. I need not say more at this particular instance. From this you may form your conclusions for your future advancement and for your betterment universally. For as you have heard from Australia, what they are doing and what they have said in Australia, they have declared they have the abundance of the fullness there as well as here. Aren't you glad? As we, as well as we have it here, that I am in Australia, New Zealand. I am in Panama. I am in England. I am in Germany. I am in Switzerland. Just as much as I am here, I do not need to be there personally, for it's not a personal issue. In this clip, Divine is talking about a universal oneness with all mankind, where there is one nation on the whole earth living under God's leadership, or Divine's leadership and speaking English, which Divine claimed was the universal language God was using to unite the world. Divine believed that a utopian world was going to appear in his lifetime, with himself inaugurating it by teaching his doctrines. Father Divine's trial was finally held on May 24 of 1932. His lawyer, Ellie J. Loveless, was a prominent Harlem African-American and former U.S. attorney. Loveless had requested the trial be moved outside of Suffolk County due to potential jury bias. The court acquiesced, and the trial took place at the Nassau County Supreme Court before Justice Lewis J. Smith. After a long trial with many witnesses, Justice Smith instructed the jury to ignore the statements made by witnesses not present on the night of the actual raid. Smith's order invalidated most of the testimony in Father Divine's favor and severely crippled his opponents. Despite this, the jury found Divine guilty on June 5th, but they asked for leniency on his behalf. Justice Smith completely ignored the jury's request 
and began to lecture Father Divine on how he was a fraud and a, quote, menace to society, before issuing the maximum sentence for disturbing the peace. One year in prison and a $500 fine. Only four days after the ruling, Justice Smith died of a heart attack on June 9, 1932. He was 55. Father Divine was widely reported to have written to his followers these words concerning the death of Justice Smith. Quote, I hated to do it. I did not desire Judge Smith to die. I did desire that my spirit would touch his heart and change his mind that he might repent and believe and be saved from the grave. The press got a hold of the words from Divine's letters and perpetuated the belief that Justice Smith's death was divine retribution for locking away Father Divine. The press also failed to report that Smith had serious prior heart problems. They implied the death to be more sudden and unexpected than it actually was. Father Divine's year in prison was a turning point in his life. During his stay, he read practically all day, every day. He spent considerable time educating himself on civil rights issues, especially the case concerning the Scottsboro Nine. Quickly, if you don't know, the Scottsboro Nine, also known as the Scottsboro Boys, were a group of nine African-American men ranging from ages 13 to 20 who were falsely accused of raping two white teenage girls in Alabama in March of 1931. The boys' case became an iconic example of legal injustice. After only 20 days, Divine's attorneys secured his release through an appeal on June 25, 1932. When Divine came out of prison, he immediately started declaring that the foundational documents of the United States of America, such as the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, were divinely inspired documents. Father Divine would also immediately start teaching people that contemporary leaders of his day have strayed away from these ideals, and he would become increasingly patriotic throughout the rest of his life. Now, you might be wondering how Father Divine can claim to be God, but also suddenly read and learn, for seemingly the first time, what sort of injustice is occurring against African Americans across the country, and is nude the idea that America's founding is divinely inspired by, well, himself. Surprisingly, most of his followers never question stuff like this. The concept of omniscience was not on anyone's radar, but similar to their perception of Jesus, Divine was seen as a figure of two natures and one substance, 
See, they thought he was God, but also completely human. And in a manner somewhat similar to canonic theology, some of Divine's followers believed that he had chosen to abandon some of his godlike attributes in order to take on flesh. But back to his life story. When he got out of prison, Father Divine decided to move out of Sayville. After all the issues he faced with his neighbors, who could blame him? He set his sights on Harlem. Many still followed him, though his previous local followers couldn't travel to see him as often. He started to amass a new, very large following in Harlem, mostly people in the black community. Father Divine's peace mission movement purchased several hotels in Harlem, and they called the properties Heavens. In New York's Harlem, the new squire of Crum Elbow is better known as Father Divine, whose thousands of followers loudly hail him as God on Earth, whose heavens quake with the worship of his flock. Number one heaven, Father Divine's capital and executive mansion, is at 123rd Street and Lenox Avenue. It houses the Father himself and his cabinet of angels and archangels. Day or night, Father Divine is in touch with his executive secretary. And whenever the spirit moves him, he is able to chat with his flock. Peace, everyone. Everybody happy? So am I. Are you in the dining room? Yeah. Uh, kitchen? Yeah. I'm right here. Only on rare occasions does Father Divine hold a press conference. I did not and do not and will not receive compensation, remuneration, love offerings, donations, or anything of that sort for my spiritual work and activities from any individual. I'm a free gift to the world, gratis to mankind. Fearful of being misquoted, Father Divine edits his own newspaper, The New Day, which carries the advertising of Divine-approved enterprises entitled to display the Divine slogan, Peace and Thank You, Father. In his scores of branch heavens, followers pay but $2 for a whole week's lodging. But Father Divine is chiefly celebrated for the unfailing regularity with which he feeds his flock. Twice a day for the past 15 years, he has provided his co-workers with sumptuous free meals. Evangelical banquets topped off with his magic voice. I'm still transmitting myself to the children of men whatsoever that means. Then I say, here you all are, and there I am. There I sit, and here you stand. These properties allowed Divine's followers a place to live for relatively cheap, giving them opportunities to seek jobs and find some economic stability for themselves and their families. 
Divine's movement even purchased a hotel in Atlantic City, New Jersey, which gave African Americans opportunities to utilize the beaches near the property. This is something they rarely had the privilege of doing at that time. Most of the property deeds owned by the Peace Mission movement were held by members of the movement rather than Divine himself. They also opened clothing shops, restaurants, and a few other economic endeavors, and ran them very successfully during the Great Depression, no less. At one point in the 1930s, the Peace Mission was the largest property owner in Harlem. Every business was a cash-only endeavor, which was still a strict aspect of Father Divine's doctrine. Followers of Father Divine owned and managed property collectively. The movement strove to alleviate poverty by feeding the poor and through education and written English, which the movement continued to call the universal language. By 1934, the Peace Mission Movement had opened up new branches in Los Angeles, California, and Seattle, Washington. Things were growing. There were also gatherings happening in the name of Father Divine in Canada, France, Switzerland, and Australia. The movement had amassed tens of thousands of followers, which is very notable, but the press actually overinflated these numbers a bit. Time Magazine did a piece on the Peace Mission where they estimated that the movement had nearly 2 million followers. As Divine's popularity grew, people began seeking his involvement in politics. A few political candidates tried to get the holy man's endorsement, including New York mayoral candidate John P. O'Brien and Fiorello H. LaGuardia. But Father Divine always seemed uninterested in politics and refused to speak into the matter publicly in either direction. That is, until 1934, when, to the surprise of many, Divine formed an alliance with the Communist Party of America. Now, Father Divine was an outspoken capitalist, so this shocked many of his followers. And it also sparked some protests from certain members of the Communist Party. They thought Father Divine was, in their words, a huckster who played with people's minds using empty promises of blessings and heaven by thinking positive thoughts. But Divine mostly took interest in the Communist Party because of their involvement in civil rights cases, not their voice in politics per se. But things changed after the Harlem Riot of 1935. On March 9th of 1935, there was a rumor that quickly spread claiming a black Puerto Rican teenager shoplifted at an S.H. Cress five and dime store and that local employees of the store beat the kid to death. Later that evening, demonstrators, organized by a group called the Young Liberators, gathered outside the store to form a protest, and things were relatively calm until someone threw a rock through the store window. After that, things got rapidly destructive, and the store was heavily damaged. The young liberators started handing out pamphlets claiming that the boy was only 12, when in fact he was 16, and that he had been beaten to death for stealing candy, both of which were untrue. 
The tension spread and several other white-owned properties were trashed as the night went on. Police showed up to try to quell the frenzy, but it only got worse. Three people died that night, hundreds were injured, and there was an estimated $2 million in damages to properties in the area. But the Harlem riot lit something in Father Divine, and he began taking political platforms more seriously. By 1939, the Peace Mission formed what they called the Divine Righteous Government Convention. They crafted completely new political platforms that differed from both major political parties. These platforms came out of Father Divine's own doctrines of faith, including his doctrine on chastity, which would discourage people's involvement with tobacco, alcohol, and sexual conduct, and encouraged modest dress. It included collective ownership of property, and of course, the power of new thought belief in the political arena. Heavenly knowledge will transform the hearts of some corrupt politicians, some of his followers thought. Here's a clip from one of Divine's sermons. Not only for those of our members of our churches and followers and immediate adherents, but give everybody the chance to come in and die. And leave it up to them in a great measure of giving what they think is right. Aren't you glad? So then I say it's a privilege to live in such a recognition and to enjoy the blessings of God and know within yourself God is with you. God's right here. I have long since declared by composition as a motto for the consideration of the people. The spirit of the consciousness of the presence of God is the source of all supply and it will satisfy every good desire. This is not a supposition. It's operative and it's expressive as you, my fellow citizens and friends, especially those of you who are metaphysically inclined and spiritually awakened. Divine's political platforms also opposed segregation, and they opposed most of President Franklin D. Roosevelt's social programs. Remember, Divine strongly disagreed with government handouts because he believed they kept people in earthly bondage through poverty. Things took a dark turn for the peace mission before Divine's involvement in politics, however. On December 16, 1935, a follower of the peace mission movement named John Hunt, a white millionaire from California, started calling himself John the Revelator. This was not a name Father Divine gave him, like Divine would do so with many other followers. Hunt did this himself. While visiting friends, the Jewett family in Colorado, Hunt kidnapped their 17-year-old daughter named Delight. He took her back to California with him and renamed her Virgin Mary 
he started having sexual relations with the girl and began proclaiming that she would soon give birth to a new redeemer by immaculate conception while in Hawaii. As soon as Divine learned of the incident, he summoned John Hunt to visit him in New York. He chastised Hunt strongly and told the man to give the Jewets their daughter back. But when they finally saw Delight, their daughter again, she was brainwashed and actually did believe she was literally the Virgin Mary. The Jewets were furious and they demanded some sort of financial compensation from Divine's movement. The Peace Mission decided to do an internal investigation into the matter and ultimately decided not to give any compensation to the Jewett family over Hunt's erratic behavior. Outraged over this, the Jewetts exacted revenge by taking the story of what happened to their daughter to the New York Evening Journal, which was already critical of the movement. Hunt was sentenced to three years in prison, which, yes, seems not nearly enough, considering he literally kidnapped and raped this poor girl. And while serving his sentence, he renamed himself the Prodigal Son. Father Divine publicly endorsed the conviction of John Hunt, but some of his followers were surprised that he would not defend a Peace Mission member. Some followers even spread rumors that Divine was going to smite the judge who sentenced Hunt dead, just as he did with Judge Smith in Sayville, New York. The entire incident caused so much bad press for Divine that the movement began a downward spiral that it couldn't stop. In March of 1937, Divine's wife, Penina, became ill while staying in Kingston, New York. Divine rarely visited Penina, instead focusing on running the movement, which caused more bad press surrounding the man. In April of that same year, two men entered a church meeting and tried to deliver Father Divine a summons in court. Things turned violent quickly, and sources say a congregant member of Divine's stabbed one of the two men, named Harry Green, and Father Divine slipped out the back of the building and went into hiding. During the month of April, while Divine was missing, a very prominent follower of his, a woman known as Faithful Mary, defected from Divine and took control of one of the larger communes. The property was actually already in her name. When followers challenged her on this, she replied to Father Divine, quote, he's just a damned man, implying he isn't God, but a fraud. Faithful Mary also alleged that Divine defrauded all of his followers so he could maintain a rich, lavish lifestyle for himself. She publicly made a number of sexual allegations against him, including a charge that Father Divine coerced women to have sex with some of his key disciples. In early May 1937, about three weeks later, Father Divine was located and extradited from Connecticut, where apparently he had been hiding, and faced criminal charges in New York. Later that summer, William Randolph Hearst's famous newsreel distributed mocking footage of Father Divine's followers as they gathered outside police headquarters, 
while Father Divine was inside. And they sang, Glory, glory, hallelujah, our God is in our land. It gets worse. Later in May of 1937, an ex-follower of the peace mission named Verinda Brown filed a lawsuit for $4,476 against Father Divine. The Browns had entrusted their savings with Father Divine in Sayville, New York, back in 1931. They left the movement in 1935, wanting to live as husband and wife again, but they were unable to get their money back from the movement. In light of their evidence, and the testimony from Faithful Mary and others who were critical of the movement, the court actually ordered Divine to repay the money back to the Browns. The decision opened up an enormous can of worms pertaining to liabilities from all ex-Peace Mission followers. How many people would Father Divine have to pay back if this became precedent? Father Divine felt like he had no choice but to resist, and he appealed the judgment. Almost a year later, in 1938, Father Divine was cleared of these previous criminal charges, and Panina, or Mother Divine, recovered from her sickness. Faithful Mary lost all credibility with her followers and couldn't deny that Father Divine seemed to have supernatural power when he was cleared of charges and his wife recovered. Impoverished and broken, she chose to return to the peace mission movement and rejoin. Father Divine actually made her grovel for forgiveness, which she did. By the late 1930s, the movement stabilized, but it had clearly passed its zenith. Now, the Verinda Brown lawsuit against Father Divine, that dragged on and was sustained on appeal. But in July of 1942... Divine was finally ordered to pay Brown or face contempt of court. Instead of paying, Father Divine fled New York and reestablished his headquarters in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He would still visit New York on occasion, though. See, state law forbade serving subpoenas in New York on Sundays. So Divine would often come into town and speak on the Sabbath day only. He would speak in Harlem, he would speak in his Kingston Commune, which they called the Promised Land, and he would speak in Sayville on Long Island. After moving to Philadelphia, Father Divine's wife Panina finally died. No one knows the exact date of her death because Father Divine never talked about it. He didn't even acknowledge her passing. We know it happened sometime in 1943 and biographers believe Panina's death rattled Father Divine, making him aware of his own mortality. It became obvious to Father Divine and his followers that his doctrine might not make one immortal, as he asserted, at least not in the flesh. But Divine's beliefs in the New Thought movement found fresh momentum in American pop culture when in 1944, Singer-songwriter Johnny Mercer came to hear one of Father Divine's sermons. The subject of his message was, You got to accentuate the positive 
and eliminate the negative. Mercer was quoted as saying, wow, that's a colorful phrase. He went back to Hollywood and got together with songwriter Harold Arlen, the guy who wrote Over the Rainbow. And together, they wrote a famous song called Accentuate the Positive, which was recorded by Mercer and the Pied Pipers in 1945. It was also recorded by Bing Crosby with the Andrews Sisters later that year. Gather around me while I preach some Feel a sermon coming on me The topic will be sin and that's what I'm again If you wanna hear my story Then saddle back and just sit tight While I start reviewing Divine eventually remarried. A white woman named Edna Rose Richings from Canada was the new Mother Divine. The ceremony was kept secret, even from most members, until Richings' visa expired. Critics of the movement believed that Father Divine's seemingly scandalous marriage to this 21-year-old girl would destroy the movement. At this time, Father Divine is almost 70. Instead, most followers rejoiced, and the marriage date became a celebrated anniversary in the movement. To prove that he and Richings adhered to his doctrine on sexual abstinence, Father Divine assigned a black female follower to be Richings' constant companion. As the 1950s hit, Father Divine continued to be covered in the press from time to time, but less as a controversial religious figure and more as an amusing cultural relic. The economy finally began to propel upward, and Divine's followers mostly declined economically. Divine himself started making ridiculous claims, even for him. He claimed that Philadelphia was the new capital of the world. He even claimed that he invented the hydrogen bomb. He held fewer and fewer banquets for his followers, and his health steadily worsened. As the civil rights movement began to swell, Divine was a supporter, but never participated, likely due to poor health conditions. But there were other reasons, too. Divine didn't believe in racial labels. He personally denied that he was black. Just like his disbelief in the concept of gender, Divine did not believe race was actually anything more than a philosophical construct. To the affirmative, don't mess with Mr. In Between. No, don't mess with Mr. In Between. You got to accentuate the positive. Yes, yes. Might need the negative and let yes, on. Yes. To the affirmative, don't mess with Mr. In Between. No, don't mess with Mr. In Between. Father Divine finally died of natural causes in Pennsylvania in 1965. 
His followers claimed his spirit continued to live within the movement, and they kept Divine's room and furnishings the exact same as he had them when he died. His wife, Edna Rose Richings, took over the movement, but it continued to dwindle. In 1972, the infamous Jim Jones attempted to take over the movement, but Richings fought Jones on the power play. See, Jones based some of his own teachings on the doctrines of the Peace Mission movement, and at one point, Jones claimed to be the reincarnated spirit of Father Divine. This was hard for Jones to sustain because, well, when Divine died, Jones was already 34 years old. Um, hello? Jones said that Divine's spirit entered Jones' body when the elderly man passed away. But no one really bought into the rhetoric, and Jones' sharp, critical, and bombastic speaking style didn't remind anyone of Father Divine's kindly nature. As of today, the Peace Mission movement still exists. It has about 19 members remaining, and they all live on the Woodmont Estate in Philadelphia, where Father Divine passed away. Father Divine is historically considered part of the New Thought movement, and his teachings make that pretty evident. But let's take a look at some specific teachings from Divine and see what has shaped the world, secular and Christian alike, today as we wrap up this episode. Number one, Divine believed and taught that all technological, philosophical, and economic advancements in the world were a result of people becoming what he called, quote, aware of the spirit of the consciousness of God. To Divine, whenever society invented something new, that was God becoming more evident on earth. Though he didn't say it outright in one solid sentence, Father Divine believed that the world was slowly becoming heaven, or God's new kingdom on earth, or the new Jerusalem, or whatever name you want to give it. As society became more civilized, more advanced, more educated, more benevolent, and more economically equitable. Rather than some eschatological event where Jesus returns to judge the world and remake it perfectly with his rule, Divine advocated, like many sophisticated, progressive, and liberal theologians, for a perfect world through social and political change as a result in the efforts of man to conform to godly virtues. Even though Divine did not seek to establish this through the world's system of politics for most of his life, this is very fitting for the New Thought Movement because it believes that humanity can grasp and hold on to perfection if it tries hard enough and make heaven a reality through mental and spiritual fortitude. In a response letter written to one of his congregants concerning food contamination in 1946, Divine wrote the following words. The very fact that the health department is working to rid the people and animals of the disease mentioned is my working of my spirit 
to sanitation and health. I believe, nevertheless, if a person is ignorant of the conditions about them, and if one abides strictly according to my teaching, nothing can hurt or harm them. In other words, Father Divine claimed that, as God, he was responsible for influencing the health and human standards conditions taking place in America that were benefiting people's health and all-around wellness. Even though he was also claiming that he personally guaranteed his followers that they would not suffer from sickness or harm regardless. Number two. Divine believed that the founding documents of the United States were divinely inspired. Now, this takes a great deal of explanation, so I need you to bear with me here. When evangelical Christians use the words divinely inspired, many of them have no idea what that actually means today. Divinely inspired does not simply mean that God had some form of influence on the ideas or the author. See, in 1881, Two profound theologians, one named A.A. Hodge and the other B.B. Warfield, they defended the belief that the words written in the Bible were directly chosen by God for the authors to write down. This means that God didn't simply reveal things to the authors, and they were so excited that they wrote these things down. It means that while the authors were writing, the Holy Spirit personally influenced every sentence and planned on the documents in Scripture to be used as coming from God's heart directly. The term used for this is plenary inspiration. Warfield and Hodge were trying to combat the surge of liberal Christianity that insisted Scripture was not perfect and therefore should not hold so much influence on the formation of Christian thoughts and ideas. Polls tell us today that almost one in three white evangelicals believe the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights are divinely inspired documents. But likely, those Americans have no idea that divinely inspired means God actually chose the words. If they do believe this, then they are saying that the United States' founding documents are on par with Scripture. Now, there is a group of Christians today that does believe this. They belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mormons believe that the United States is divinely founded by God for the purpose of spreading God's divine mandate through a solely Christian society. What many people don't realize is that fundamentalist Christian churches, even though they rejected Mormonism, were heavily influenced by it, just like they were influenced by the New Thought movement, even though they openly rejected that as well. As we talked about on the last episode, E.W. Kenyon rejected the New Thought movement, yet his teachings were riddled with it. Despite being a mostly black congregation, Divine and his followers openly accepted ideas promoted by New Thought and Mormonism that the United States would become God's future heaven on earth, a gateway to the dominion of the kingdom of God. And while we're on this topic, let's close with number three. Many people today follow a narrative that associates America's pride and hubris with white nationalism and racism. People claim slogans like President Donald Trump's Make America Great Again, derived from a background of white rich people who capitalize off the backs of systemic racism. 
But the truth is, black communities, like Father Divine's in New York, believed America was God's destined geographical heaven on earth, and that he was called to help materialize that reality of heaven here in America long before the alt-right existed. You want to talk about making America great? Divine believed that making America stronger and healthier was, in fact, liberation for black Americans, not a tighter chain around them. Divine believed that America's documents were written by God for this very purpose, and that all religions would eventually culminate in spiritual truth that leads to a real heaven. In other words, America is the birthplace of the kingdom of God. We can clearly see that these beliefs still exist today. And now we all know the effects that New Thought had through much of the first half of the 20th century, especially within black communities in the United States. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. I hope it added to your knowledge and insight and encourages you to think critically and reflect on how our beliefs and theology is shaped by the ebbs and flows of the culture around us. If you'd like to learn more about the New Thought Movement or Father Divine, most of the resources that I used to make this episode, they're listed in the show notes. You can also find more info about me in there. Please tell a friend about this podcast if you think they'd be interested in this at all. And thank you again so much for coming on this history journey with me today. Peace.